0: Our reading is from the 12th chapter of Luke, verses 22 through 34. Hear this reading from God's Word. Then, turning to his disciples, Jesus said, That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear. For life is more than food, and your body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for God feeds them. And you are more valuable to him than any birds. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over big things, bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? And don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will give you everything you need. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven and the purses of heaven can never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, uh, Mr. Park. So many of you know, or maybe you don't know, but last week I got to go to San Francisco And and I was accepted as a part of a spiritual direction cohort with about 25 other clergy just trying to discern some things. And so I got to go out to San Francisco, and I decided, because I had never been to California, that I wanted to spend a couple of days afterwards uh, there just exploring the city. It's always been a dream of mine to go to San Francisco. So uh, I was excited, of course, about uh, the... This is not working, if someone can handle that for me. Uh, I was excited, of course, about Alcatraz and the Golden Gate Bridge. But even more excited was I about the Muir Woods, which is basically the southern end of the Redwoods. And I wanted to get out of the sights and the sounds of not only the city of San Francisco, but also just living in this city. I wanted to be alone I wanted to hike I wanted to pray I wanted to journal and I wanted to do it all in a space that is largely unencumbered by other human presence and I know as an extrovert if I get to a place where I need to be away from people that means I have a deep deep need that is happening somewhere rumbling in my soul it was a longing, I think, that is articulated in Wendell Berry's poem, The Peace of the Wild Things, which is on the front page of the card that I gave you. Berry said, when the despair of the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go lie down where the wood drake rests his beauty, In the beauty on the water, in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of the wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come in the presence of still water. And I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. What makes Wendell Berry's poetry so powerful for so many people is that not only is Wendell Berry a devout Christian who has a sense of the transcendence, but he is also a devoted agrarian, meaning that he is very much rooted in the actual tangible dirt and earth of creation. And so he has these insights into how heaven and earth are rolled up into each other. Insights that are only achieved by actually observing creation, by sitting in creation, by embracing creation, by loving creation. Like when he contrasts the peace of the wild things and the grace of the world with the fear That I have of what my and my children's future may hold. He understands, because he has sat with God in creation, that the only antidote to fear is actually to sit in nature and to meditate on God. In fact, the very choice, the very act of meditation itself is an intentional rejection of fear that is formed in us by our consumerist and our violent society. When you think about how consumerism and violence shape our fear, you realize that it's just everywhere. Think about how many of our politicians get us to vote for them. They create economic policies that generate scarcity which in turns creates a context of violence, because we know that violence and poverty are tied together. So they create policies that generate scarcity, leaving the money in the hands of the few, while leaving the majority of people in poverty, creating thus a context of scarcity and violence. And then they turn around and they stoke fear that if we don't reelect them, there will be more scarcity and more violence. Or consider our local MPD, under investigation from the Federal Department of Justice for levels of corruption so deep that the New York Times is reporting on it, creates a world in which you and I are afraid to live with the police, and yet we are also afraid of a world without the police. Or consider the everydayness of the products we buy. How much of the advertising is based in fear. I quoted the poetry of Wendell Berry earlier. Now I will quote the grittiness of Max Brooks' World War Z, a zombie book. One character says, the only rule that ever made sense, I learned from a history, not an economics professor professor at Wharton. Fear, he used to say, fear is the most valuable commodity in the universe. That blew me away. Turn on the TV, he'd say, what are you seeing? People selling their products? No. People selling the fear of you having to live without their products. Fear of aging. Fear of loneliness. Fear of poverty. Fear of failure. Fear is the most basic emotion we have. Fear is primal. Fear sell. if I can say it even more clearly in the language of the New Testament, fear doesn't just sell. Fear controls. It enslaves. This is why Jesus warns, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. A heart that is not oriented toward the right treasure, a heart that is oriented toward another treasure than that which it was created to long for, a heart that therefore is idolatrous, a heart that therefore is consumed with fear because wherever there is idolatry, there is always fear. A heart that is fearful is a heart that is enslaved. Jesus knew this. He's been building... On this idea for weeks do you remember last week the parable that Jesus told the parable of the rich man who had the great harvest and he was fearful that that harvest would uh, dilute his selling power and so instead he built bigger barns and kept all of this to himself ensuring that his neighbors starved he's afraid of a world in which the 1% have to share what they have and the 99% are elevated. He is afraid of a world where the 1% have to feel insecure because the 99% experience something like, I don't know, basic living conditions. Jesus criticized this man last week saying that he is neither considers his accountability before God for his actions, nor does he consider his responsibility toward his hungry neighbors. And it is all rooted in fear. If I give up my excess so that somebody else has enough, what happens then? What happens when the world is turned upside down because everybody has enough? Jesus contrasts that fear-based mentality with the peace of the wild things and the grace of the world. In a world of sleepless nights that cause us to wake at the slightest sound, in a world where we wonder about the future of ourselves and our children and our grandchildren, Barry says that his practice is to go out into nature and meditate, and it turns out that that's incredibly biblical. Biblical. It is, in fact, what Jesus tells us to do when worries are consuming us. Jesus says, after telling them, do not worry, he then says, consider the ravens and consider the lilies of the field. What's he saying? Go into nature and meditate on nature and God's presence with the world through nature. And it's not just sentimental. Consider, for example, the ravens in the slide just before. I had to do some research on ravens to understand why this was Jesus' example. You see, ravens don't produce anything for themselves. They're basically scavenger birds who steal from other animals or feed off of dead carcasses. They don't work, they don't harvest, and they definitely don't squirrel away in case they have some need for the future. Therefore, in ancient Judaism, the raven was considered a good-for-nothing, doesn't-do-anything, ritually-unclean bird. Jesus, to tell them not to worry, uses the example of a good-for-nothing, doesn't-do-anything, ritually-unclean bird. Jewish midrashim even say that God has to feed the raven's babies because the ravens don't even take care of their own children. And yet Jesus says that God takes care of this worthless, deadbeat animal. Or consider the lilies of the field. This one I definitely have to tell you is not sentimental because the ravens were like, ah, scavenger birds, eh. Not very majestic. But lilies, we write hymns and poetry about. But it turns out this is not sentimental either. Jesus tells us that the lilies are an example of God caring for something that doesn't even do the work of a good woman. Look at the lilies. And how they grow, they don't work or make their clothing. Farming in Jesus' day was primarily the work of men. The making of clothing was women's work. Do you remember, and not just women's work, it was moralized women's work. Like, a woman who made clothing for her family was a good woman, and a woman who didn't make clothing for her family was not a good virtuous woman. Do you remember, do any of you, especially from purity culture women, do you remember the Proverbs 31 woman? She's the woman, oh, if you don't know the Proverbs 31 woman, you, you need to read Proverbs 31, because she was set before all the women in my church as the paragon of virtue. Proverbs 31 begins with something like a question that's like, Who can find a good woman? Her price is far above rubies. She's wise and she's industrious. And then it goes through and it's just this entire chapter. Don't Google this, you'll get the most absurd white women staring up at the sky. We're virtuous. in clothes they clearly didn't make. (laughs) You got that sweater from the gap, Becky. (laughs) Moralized women's work was being industrious and making the clothing for your children and your families. And Jesus says the lilies of the field don't even do that. The lilies of the field are not hardworking, they are not industrious, they are not good Proverbs 31 flowers. But when Jesus puts these two things together and he shows God's deep, deep love and affection and care and concern for these things that don't even work, you cannot tell me that that does not throw our disposition toward others completely upside down. Again, to go back to our politicians that create scarcity and therefore violence, who gets blamed in a world where there is lack of industry? People who don't work. Vote for me, I'm going to make sure I get everybody to work or they don't get welfare. Jesus is saying that's absurd. That's actually not how God works. The ravens are scavengers. The lilies don't even do good moralized women's work and yet God protects them and God cares for them and God clothes them. This is what God is like. This is what God is like. What if our idea The rugged individualist hard working person is contrary to the teachings of Jesus. What if we're the ones, not Jesus? What if we're the ones who are crazy? To spend all our lives working and toiling and spinning for things that will eventually get holes in them and wear out and disappear and never ultimately make us happy or joyful or who God made us to be. We moralize it, don't we? What do we call it in Memphis, that hard-working spirit? Anybody know what I'm about to say? Grit and grind. This is a grit and grind city. We, we put it on our NBA logos. We, we literally buy players to play for our NBA teams because they work well with the ethos of our grit and grind city. We call it grit and grind. Jesus called it striving. And he tells us that this striving grit and grind mentality that focuses on earning and controlling your environment so you don't feel fear, so that you can continue to feel in control, that this is contrary to his good news of the kingdom of God coming from earth. Right now. Jesus tells us that grit and grind striving culture never added a single minute to anyone's life. But you know what? We know it's cut a lot of lives short. Again, we moralize it. He just worked his fingers to his bones until the day he died, never even retired. We moralize it. Nobody ever gets to the last minute of their life and says, you know what? I wish I would have worked a lot more. Nobody. Our striving, grinding culture is a reflection then, according to Jesus, of where our hearts are, of what we're enslaved to. And insofar as we are enslaved to these things, Jesus says that we are no different than our unbelieving neighbors. Right, this, this, is, this, is, this is what I say over and over for years and years and years. For those of you who've been with me for 10 years, for those of you who've been with me like one year, like, I say all the time something to the effect of our understanding of the gospel ought to trickle down to every element of our life. Work included. Grind culture included. How does the good news of Jesus make your work ethic different than the people you work with who don't have the hope of the resurrection of Jesus? This is not me preaching against hard work. There's a value in hard work, but a value, the value of hard work is not ultimate. It is not the primary thing that we are about. It is wild to me that we live in a society where people can grind it out for 40 hours a week and still can't afford basic living. Living. And then we blame them as if they're bad people. The gospel is a critique. The gospel where you and I receive the treasures of God for free is a critique of all our assumptions that the people who work are the ones who deserve and the people who don't work don't. Instead of striving and grinding, Jesus said we should strive for the kingdom. Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and God will give you everything you need. Maybe not more than you need, but everything you need. Because one of the things that scripture does tell us way back in the creation story is that if each of us only took what we needed, there would be more than enough for everybody. But the reason there's not more than enough for everybody is because some of us are taking way more than we need and morally justifying it. I worked for it. Everything you need, Jesus says. This is an incredibly, wildly lavish statement. And Jesus adds to it, don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now listen, don't automatically hear the word kingdom and think, oh, There's Marx's opiate of the masses. Jesus is just saying, you know, endure just a little bit right now because one day God's going to have treasures in heaven for you, which it sounds like that's what he's saying, right? God delights in giving you the kingdom. And later he says, give away everything you have because there's going to be treasures waiting for you in heaven. It absolutely sounds like the opiate kind of religion. But remember the kingdom in Luke is not a next worldly reality. Jesus has been preaching the kingdom way, all the way back since Luke chapter 4. And what did he say the kingdom is about? Forgiven debts, feeding the poor, prisoners set free, year of jubilee where all of the land and economics are reset so that everybody has what they need now. The kingdom is not some mystical idea that's just next worldly. Jesus is envisioning you and I living in that reality right now. And it is a reality God delights to give us. Grind culture says that everybody, including God, has to be miserly. And Christian community should say, no, everybody, including God, should be generous. And when everyone is generous, everyone has what they need. Maybe the power of grind culture is precisely in the fact that it never lets us slow down to think about this. Because if we slowed down, then we would have enough time to see that, all of our, that many of our fears are artificial and that many of our fears are manufactured by a society that needs us to be enslaved to our fear. Consider, for example, what we know from neuroscience. Neuroscience teaches us that our brains... Our circuitry in our brains actually processes emotion a lot faster than reason. And there's good reason for this, right? Because our evolutionary ancestors, when they were living on the Serengeti and they saw a shadow that looked like a lion in the corner of their eyes, they they had to emotionally process that before they were like, oh, it's just a shadow. I wonder if that's really a lion or not. No, they see a shadow that looks like a lion and the emotion kicks in and they have to run and then they can think about it later. Well, it turns out it was just the shadow of their ugly husband. (laughs) She She had to calm down to see that. She's like, man, he is ugly. He looks like a lion and it's scary. But at least it was just him and not a real lion. Our brains were evolutionarily wired to process emotion a lot faster, fear a lot faster than reason. Our amygdala fires and tells us danger, 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 and our body leaps into action. The problem is today we are not hunted by lions. The problem is that God has actually brought the kingdom and taught us you're not living on the capitalistic Serengeti anymore the kingdom is built on different rules than dog-eat-dog dog world, and that you and I are supposed to be people who embody that. The problem is that even though we don't live on the Serengeti anymore, everyone from advertisers to bosses use our neural circuitry against us. And they allow us, or they enforce this enslavement by keeping us grinding, by going, working, 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 and never stopping, never slowing down, sacrificing our children, sacrificing our families, sacrificing our grandchildren, sacrificing our church, sacrificing our community, sacrificing serving others. We sacrifice everything else so that we can continue to grind, but grinding is the problem, and we can never see it because we never stop grinding. And this is where entering the peace of the wild things is helpful. Where in Jesus' words, considering, contemplating, meditating, praying, free us from our enslavement to grind culture. Being in creation, seeing God's gifts around us, entering the peace of the wild things has a liberating effect on us. It helps us see that the God who cares for deadbeat ravens and freeloading lilies sees even me when I'm not producing and consuming. So that is my call for you this week. What would it look like for you to go home today to make a list of your fears, the things that enslave and control you, and to look at your calendar and say, what is a day or four hours of this week that I can go into the woods or into nature and meditate on the peace of the wild things? The great spiritual teachers of the church and even other faiths tell us that nature is a kind of thin space between God and humanity, a space that is easier to encounter God than in the noisy distraction of work. So this week, what would it look like for you to enter into the peace of the wild things and see what god might reveal on that still small voice that can only be heard where you can hear ravens chirping and lilies doing nothing but sitting there looking pretty to that end i leave you with the prayer that you were given on the card other side of the card when you came in a prayer that i think is appropriate both to end this service but also is appropriate to take with you out into the woods and to begin your time with god let's pray Lord, as life passes by swiftly, events that a few days ago kept me totally preoccupied have now become vague memories. Conflicts that a few months ago seemed so crucial in my life now seem futile and hardly worth the energy. Inner turmoil that robbed me of my sleep only a few weeks ago has now become a strange emotion of the past. Books that filled me with amazement a few days ago now do not seem as important. Thoughts that kept my mind captive only a few hours ago have now lost their power and have been replaced by others. Why am I continuously trapped in this sense of urgency and emergency? Why do I not see that you are eternal, that your kingdom lasts forever, and that for you a thousand years are like one day? So, O Lord, let me enter into your presence and there taste the eternal, timeless, everlasting love with which you invite me to let go of my time-bound anxieties, fears, preoccupations, and worries. Lord, teach me your ways and give me the courage to follow them. Amen.